Patrick's on the mend and on the move, so. Well, we are glad that you're here. If you are here for the first time with us, we want to tell you that we are in this sort of epic journey. It is a uh, journey that we began in 2014, and we started going verse by verse through the book of Acts. Uh, kind of one of our high values as a church is that we deeply believe in, in sort of being word-centered, that we want to examine and look at God's word. We don't do a lot of topical teaching. We really work deeply through scripture. My goal as a preacher, as a teacher, is to get you involved in God's word and let him mess up your life. That is just the end of the story. And so we have not missed a single word. We've gone through the book of Acts for 54 weeks now. We've taken some breaks here and there. But we are into week 54. And it is a big day for us uh, for no other reason than we are ending the sort of second movement and we are stepping into the home stretch next week. So the first movement of the book of Acts is really the birth of the apostolic church all the way up to the persecution that Herod kind of threw at the church. The second movement was Paul's missionary journeys, and we're going to bring those three journeys to a close today as Paul arrives back in Jerusalem. And the third and final movement is going to be Paul's trials in Jerusalem and his movement ultimately up into Rome where he is going to wait uh, on a trial basically to go before Caesar. And the book is kind of divided out that way. And we are finishing the second major section, and we're in the, the home stretch. So for a lot of us, it's been quite a long time coming. So though some of you here for the very first time, you're going, oh, it's no big deal. No, 54 weeks is a long time uh, in one book. So we've learned a lot. Uh, we've actually been part of some of the deepest and most incredible relationships. We've seen incredible miracles and moments throughout Scripture. And like I tell everybody every week, the book of Acts is not really a, a, a story. It's not even a history. It actually is a call. It's the call of the church, and it's the call of the follower of Christ. It's who we are called to be, empowered by the Holy Spirit and sent into the world. The church does not exist for the maintenance of itself. It doesn't exist to gather and stay in buildings and hold parties and studies and things. The church exists to be sent by the Holy Spirit into the world to take the gospel into the lives of people. And Acts is the picture of that. It's the call of the church, and it's, it's your call, and it's my call. Well, Paul is wrapping up the third missionary journey. So for the past few weeks, we've kind of explored this. He has spent two and a half years in Ephesus where he has taught every single day uh, three months in a synagogue, and then when he got booted out of there, he rented a town hall just down the road, and he taught every single day for the next almost two full years until Acts chapter 19 tells us that every person in the entire province of Asia had heard the gospel, right? Riot breaks out, all kinds of crazy things happen, and Paul feels like it's time for him to return to Jerusalem. But the Holy Spirit is calling him to go back. And so he does that by going 1,500 miles in the wrong direction. He sets sail and goes back up to Achaia and goes back up to Macedonia, where he revisits believers in the churches that he planted in Berea and in Philippi and Thessalonica and Athens and Corinth, and he visits with those, encourages them. Then he and his companions travel back down to Troas, where they have this really incredible miracle moment while he's preaching at midnight, and this kid falls out of the third-story window, and Paul rushes down and raises him from the dead in this really amazing moment. And then they sort of set sail and they make their way to this little city called Miletus. And we have spent the past two weeks talking about this encounter that Paul has in the city of Miletus. It's 33 miles south of Ephesus. 
And Paul knows that he can't return to Ephesus because if he does, he has got to spend time with all the families that he created kind of relationships with over the two and a half years that he was there. But he's trying to get back to Jerusalem. The Spirit has called him there, and he is following the Holy Spirit, and he wants to get there by Pentecost. And so he's traveling, and he knows if he goes to Ephesus, it'll just be too much, too many people, and so he just can't do it. So he stops 33 miles short in this port city of Miletus, and he sends a word to have the elders of the church come down and meet him. So the elders of the church in Ephesus come down and meet Paul in the city of Miletus, and we spent two weeks looking at this encounter, this sort of raw, emotional sort of outpouring that these men had and the depth of the relationships that they had. And, and last week we left off where they are basically embracing and hugging and kissing and saying, Paul, you know, we're going to miss you. And Paul looks at him and he says, look, I am never going to see you again. Paul knew that his movement to Jerusalem was ultimately going to cost him his freedom and most likely his life. And so he said, we're not going to see each other again. And they were broken. They were sad. They were so deeply connected. Uh, and Paul said, but listen, here is the story of my life. I have been compelled by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what waits for me there. But I can tell you this, every time I go to a city, the Spirit of the Lord tells me that hardships and imprisonment wait me. So what more is waiting for me in Jerusalem? Meaning most likely death, right? And he said, but I consider my life worth nothing. If only I may finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. And that's how Paul leaves it with them. And we talked about that sort of, what if that was the cry of your heart? Like, what if the cry of my heart was, Lord, I consider my life worth nothing, zero, if only I may finish the race and complete the task that you have given me. What is that? The task of testifying to the world about your grace and your goodness. And we talked about how we longed kind of for that to be the heartbeat of a church and the heartbeat of our, our lives. And, and so this morning, we're going to be picking up at the end of those relationships. These elders are walking uh, Paul to the boat to basically never see him again. After all this time, he had played such an instrumental role in their life, and they loved each other so much. Walking them to the boat to set sail to never see him again. And we're going to follow Paul's movement as he lands a few times and ends ultimately in a town called Caesarea, and then they head to Jerusalem. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open it up to Acts chapter 20. We're going to begin in the last three verses where he left off um, yesterday, or yesterday, Sunday, and then um, we're going to kind of continue through uh, those few verses. And what we're going to focus on this, this morning is there's two real ways to look at this text, right? The one of the ways is we're going to look at, we could look at it in terms of, hey, life is really dangerous for Paul. Jerusalem's going to be dangerous. There's threats waiting there. There's all kinds of imprisonment or, or death waiting there. But Paul, compelled by the Holy Spirit, is going to go anyway. And we can talk about courage and all that. But really, the book of Acts is, is really about that. We've talked about it so much. And so what I want to explore is I want to explore these verses from a little bit of a lesser kind of obvious angle. And I want to talk about the deep picture of Christian fellowship that we see in Scripture, that we are called to not only as individuals, um, but as a church. So that's where we're going to go this morning. So if you've got your Bible, let's open up. Um, Acts chapter 20, verse 36 is where we're going to start. And uh, before we do that, of course, let's go before the Lord and just ask Him to teach our hearts this morning. Let's pray. God, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You that it is timeless and that it is true. God, I thank You that an encounter with Your Word is an encounter with You. Lord, I thank You that um, there is nothing that we can add to it or take away from it. And that, Lord, you instruct our hearts through it. And so, God, I ask that your Holy Spirit would teach us this morning, that you would reveal yourself to us. Lord, we can't discover you. Um, Lord, we don't come to, to revelation about you. You, in turn, uh, reveal yourself to us. And so, God, we ask that you would teach our hearts um, this morning. Take a moment in your own heart 
and just ask God to teach you something. It doesn't matter what it is. Whatever he needs to speak to your heart this morning, just ask that God would, would teach your heart this morning. However you need to say that. God, teach, teach me this morning. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you, in front of you, behind you. We do this every week, and I tell us every, each week to be in the habit of praying for other people. Just pray that God would move in them. Maybe you've never seen them before. Just pray. God knows who they are. Pray for them. Pray that God would move in their heart. Realize that this morning is not just about you, uh, but pray for someone beside you. Lord, we turn this morning over to you. We don't invite you in this place. We know your presence is everywhere and already here. We surrender our hearts to you. We ask you to teach us in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So we're going to pick up in the last few verses that we left off in last week where Paul is wrapping up his time with these Ephesian elders in verse 20, chapter 20, verse 36. And he says this, um, when he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and they prayed. And they wept and they embraced and they kissed. And they, would, they knew that they would never see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Chapter 21. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patra. And we found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia. We went on board and set sail. And after sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed in Tyree where we... Uh, our ship was to unload its cargo. Finding the disciples there, we stayed with them for seven days. Though the Spirit, they, through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. But when the time had come and was up, we left and continued on our way. All the disciples and their wives and children accompanied us to the city. And there on the beach, they knelt to pray. And after saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and we returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyree and landed in Telemus, where we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for about a day. And leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea. We stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. And he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took off Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and we'll hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? Am I not ready to be bound but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of our Lord Jesus? When, we would not be, when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. After this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Nason, where we were to stay, and he was a man from Cyprus, and he was one of the early disciples. So another movement of traveling. For the past few weeks, we have seen these movements of traveling, and they were important in the text, but here's where we are. Paul has wrapped up this emotional, intense time with the Ephesian elders. They had poured their hearts. They had knelt on, on the beach there. They had wept and cried together, and, and Luke begins by saying, after we had torn ourselves away from them, we boarded a ship, and we set sail along the coast again, and we kind of island hopped and, and found boats that were headed back towards Syria. Now, Syria, of course, is Paul's homeland. It was where he was from. His home church was a town called Antioch in Syria. And they were making the return basically back that way to go 
to Jerusalem. And they found boat to boat, and they kind of set sail. And the last city they landed on, they had to find a boat that would take them 400 miles all the way past Cyprus and land on the uh, Phoenician, the Syrian coast. And so they did that. They get, up, they get on a boat, and they board, and they sail this 400 miles, which was not easy or safe. And they land on the Phoenician coast, and they landed in a city where they had to unload and reload cargo. Apparently it took about seven days. And while they were doing that, they had some time to kill, so they got out in this port city of Tyree, and they found the believers there, the disciples, and they spent seven days with them in their homes, spending time with them, praying, all the things you'd think that we saw Paul do over his missionary journeys. They spent time with them. When the time came for them to leave, they pleaded with Paul. They said, look, you can't go to Jerusalem. They all knew that something terrible was waiting there. The sort of rise of Jewish opposition was incredibly strong. They knew what was happening. They knew what was happening in Jerusalem, and they knew that if Paul went there, it was going to ultimately lead to his imprisonment, most likely his death, and they pleaded with him. Paul doesn't say a word. Their time was up, and they just leave. But as they get ready to leave, I find this sort of incredible picture, and I'll talk a little bit more in a minute but, about it, but this incredible picture where the disciples and the, the men and their wives and their children accompany Paul and his companions, most likely three or four guys, to the beach, right there where the ships get boarded and, and head out. And they said right there in the morning, they fall in the sand, and they kneel together, and they just begin to pray. They just begin to pray together. And it's this really cool picture of the disciples of the church sort of praying over Paul and his companions knowing full well that he was walking into deep danger, right? So they get on a boat, and they sail again to another city, the city of Telemus, and they go, uh, they spend about a day there, and, and that's 25 miles south, and they get out, and they spend the day with the disciples, and they get back on the boat, and they, they make one more stop, and they land in the port city of Caesarea, which is the last stop before you make the 60-mile trek inland to Jerusalem. Right, So they get out there, and they spend time with a guy by the name of Philip the Evangelist. Now, those of you that have been here since 2014 will know that we've spent a lot of time talking about Philip the Evangelist. Back in Acts chapter 8, Philip was one of the guys that they appointed to be in charge of the daily distribution of food. So if you remember, there was this sort of uprising where they were, had put all their resources together as a church... But what was happening is some of the Gentiles felt like that their widows weren't getting as much food as the Jewish widows. And they was causing kind of a ruckus. And so the, the leaders of the church said, look, we can't deal with this. So we're going to appoint people that we believe God has raised up as leaders. And they're going to make sure that we are honoring the Lord with how we handle our resources. And Philip was one of those people they raised up. So he was one of the seven, they mentioned. So he was one of the seven leaders that God raised up. But Philip is also known as an evangelist because if you remember when um, Paul was sort of coming into power, not as, a, uh, as an apostle, but he was coming into a power as a Pharisee, right? He was at the death of Stephen, the stoning of Stephen. And, and it was this incredible moment where Paul was taking power and Stephen was being stoned to death. And it said that on that day, a persecution broke out against the church and the church was scattered, scattered. And Philip found himself as part of that scattering of leaders in Samaria where God began to bless his ministry. He began to teach. People came to know Christ. God called him all the way down to the desert road in Gaza, and Philip preached the gospel to this uh, Ethiopian eunuch. You may remember all these stories we've talked about. The point is, Philip got the nickname Philip the Evangelist because every time he preached the gospel, God would do huge things. Well, at the very end of Acts 8, verse 40. There's a little throwaway verse there that says, Philip preached the gospel all over the countryside until he reached Caesarea. I guess Philip just made a home. He got there. He 
settled down, and he's got four unmarried daughters that all have the gift of prophecy. And that is Philip, and they spent time with Philip. Now, we don't know how much time, but we know they probably spent many days with Philip there. And while they're with Philip, this guy by the name of Agabus, a prophet that we saw in Acts chapter 11, actually shows up. He comes up from Jerusalem, and he takes right there off Paul's belt, right there in front of everybody, big, long cloth belt, right? And he does what the Old Testament prophets did. And the Old Testament prophets always did sort of a physical act. They would tear their clothes. They would dump ashes on themselves. They would roll in the dirt. They would do all kinds of things as a way of sort of acting out these prophetic movements. Well, this Agabus, who we saw in Acts chapter 11 as a prophet as well, comes to him, removes Paul's big, long cloth kind of belt that they would wrap around themselves multiple times, and he ties up his own hands, and he ties up his own feet together. And he looks at everybody, and he says, I'm here to tell you that God has told me, the Holy Spirit has told me, that the owner of this belt, which of course is Paul, right? When you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound. In other words, you're going to be captured. You're going to be put in jail and you're going to be handed over, right? And then Luke says, we and all the people there, right? All of Philip's family and all the people and the disciples in Caesarea pleaded with Paul not to go. They all knew what was coming, right? They had seen it. And Agabus, the prophet, just sort of put the exclamation mark on it. Like, this is the beginning of the end. And they pleaded with Paul not to go. But Paul says, listen, am I not ready, right, to go to Jerusalem and not just be bound, but to die for the, same, for the name of Jesus Christ? Luke says that when they realized that they couldn't dissuade him, they just looked at him and said, okay, then God's will be done, right? In other words, saying, okay, Lord, we, we turn Paul over to you, right? And so they got ready. At that moment, they packed up their stuff, and with some of the disciples from Caesarea, they set out of the 60-mile trek where they, they introduced this guy named Nason who probably has a house about midway through, and they stayed with him, and they make their trek into Jerusalem. And when they arrive in Jerusalem, the end of the third missionary journey is kind of complete. And we're going to see next week how this sort of unfolds in this uh, deeply trying time for Paul because we can see what's about to unfold. There's a couple different ways we could really approach this passage, right? The first is this idea of going, you know, Paul knows what he's getting into. The Holy Spirit has compelled him and called him to go. Everybody around him is saying, look, you can't go, it's too dangerous. But Paul has these incredible statements where he says, hey, look, am I not willing to be bound and to die for the name of Jesus? And we could sort of explore that movement of courage that says, hey, look, we don't know where the Lord's leading us, but we would rather say yes to him in obedience and live a life of safety and comfort, right? But really, it's the story of Acts. We've talked about that probably 1,100 times, right? We've talked about that picture. Oh, and that is a number, yes. It's not 70 billion. That's the biggest number ever. But 110 gazillion is pretty big too. So, um, but we talked about it so many times. And so I thought to myself, what's the other picture here that we're not really seeing on the surface? And it's an incredible picture of Christian fellowship. Four times, really starting with the Ephesian elders, as Paul makes land, he has these incredible encounters with believers. And I think that one of the things that gets missed in this is the importance of the idea that the Christian life is not meant to be lived alone, right? We live in a culture where you don't have to go to church to go to church, right? You can podcast, you can get online, you can do whatever. But if we really read scripture, the Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. And there's a little kind of five word statement that I've used over and over again. This won't sound new to you if you've been here for a long time, that I deeply believe the church is called to, and I deeply believe that our church, as part of the bigger movement, the bigger church, bigger C movement is called to, and that's to know and be known. That we exist in a way that is called for our hearts to be made bare before each other and for us to know people, 
right? Now, most of us are okay with this idea when it comes in our categories. I've been a part of a life group or a youth group or a Sunday school class, and we've met for five years, and I know the couples in there so well, and so I'm willing to be somewhat vulnerable with them. But that's not really what we're seeing in these texts. We're not seeing that sort of intense group that is met every day and you finally feel comfortable with them. We are seeing people that are sewn together by the love and grace of Christ that have opened their hearts to live vulnerably with each other, inviting Paul and his companions into each other's lives. Now, if you're honest, most of us cringe at this thought. We cringe at the idea of being deeply and really authentic and vulnerable. Our culture isn't that way. We're taught not to be that way. It really makes us uncomfortable. I mean, what if I were to tell you right now that I want you to turn to the person you're right, and I want you to tell them the one thing in the world that you are most ashamed of, right? And then hug it out, right? I mean, that would be about as uncomfortable a situation for any number of us for any reason, right? Because we, we really are, are, are petrified of that kind of vulnerability because we've been taken advantage of. We've had people talk about us behind our back. We've been lied to. And most of that has happened within the metaphorical walls of the church, right? We've talked about this before. Some of the most hurtful experiences in my life have happened in the metaphorical walls of the church. So vulnerability and being known is something that we are very cautious with. Now, a lot of us will live with our emotions on our sleeve, but we don't live with our hearts on our sleeve. There's a huge difference, right? I can be emotional. I can show you that I care, but I don't have to expose my heart to you. Now, I'm not advocating that we're called to just share for the sake of sharing. I don't want you to walk into your boss's office tomorrow and be like, hey, listen, boss, lady, here's the deal. I never really wanted this job, right? It's a little bit beneath me, and I got to tell you, That I'm feeling conflicted because I'm having struggles at home and really this week I've only come in about two days. And honestly, I've only worked about 15 minutes of real work. But here's what I need. I need a raise and I need a hug. And so I just want to be honest, right? No, I'm not advocating sharing for the sake of sharing, right? I'm advocating in a different relationship within the context of people that have been sewn together by a common love for Christ. And that common thread is this, that we have been first loved by Jesus, and that love compels us to think, live, and love differently. That because Jesus has loved me, that love compels me to think, live, and love differently. And it's going to be the trail that sort of sews these things together. Because what we're going to see, as I explain it in just a minute, we're not going to see life groups of people that have spent decades building relationships. We're going to be seeing people that have spanned geography, hundreds and hundreds of miles apart. We're going to see people that have spanned kind of uh, demographics with age, children and wives and husbands and, and leaders in the church that are knit together, that are opening their homes, that are living in places of deep emotional connected vulnerability because they have been connected through Jesus Christ. Most of our church life exists, as we talked about last week, on this superficial plane, right? Superficial. We wait and see if anybody else is going to first live a little vulnerable, and then we'll sort of get a little trial piece out there, float that balloon, see what happens. But very rarely are we willing to just say, hey, look, this is me. And all of my glorious disaster, brokenness, and failures, this is me. Because we've been hurt. We've been wounded. We're broken. But the picture that we see in Scripture is one where we have to be the first to say, God, I want to live in a place that's different than what I've been taught. So we see a few things in Scripture I want to point you out to. And I really see there's kind of four characteristics that jump out to me 
when I talk about this idea of life together and existing to know and be known. So that I would know someone intimately and that they would know me, right? And I'm not talking about, just real quickly, that sort of situational, like your college roommate or y'all best friends with you, you know, you can kind of call if anything happens. I'm talking about something more than information sharing, right? I'm not talking about who you call when life's difficult. I'm talking about this sort of vulnerability of heart that just says, I exist so that people can know the true me, not the, the mask-wearing sort of picture that we present when we show up in this building, but the true, real, real me. Well, there's a couple of characteristics we see. The first comes in that, that picture that we see with the Ephesian elders. There's Life together is deeply connected, really, is this sort of first concept. And you don't have to look any farther than that moment that Paul has with the elders right there. He's pouring his heart out to them. They are weeping together. Like these group of men are just sobbing over the fact that they have just learned that they will never see Paul again. And they know what that means. They know that Paul is marching back to Jerusalem, most likely to his death, and that they will never see him again. And they were so deeply connected that it broke their hearts. They had spent time together. Paul had taught them. They had instructed each other. They had kind of kind of poured their hearts out there. And they were deeply connected. And, and Luke uses a word in 21, verse 1, that's really important. He says, and when we had finally torn ourselves away from them, right, we made it to the ships. I don't think it's an accidental word that Luke uses. Literally, that word means to just rip off. In other words, there wasn't going to be this sort of kind of airport goodbye and hug and text me when you get there. It was a, we will never see you again, and it grieves me, and I don't want to let go of you. I don't want to let go of you. And, and Luke says, we literally had to tear ourselves away from them. You ever been connected to somebody like that? I mean, really connected on that level, right? Now, modern technology has kind of interrupted a little bit of this for us because we can get a hold of people at any time, but still that idea of that sort of physical connectedness. The gospel connects lives. The deepest friendships in my life, I would not be friends with if it wasn't for Jesus. We don't have anything in common outside of that. We would have never run in the same circles. For whatever reason, the Lord and his kind of amazing uh, sovereignty knit us together because of our commonality in Christ. We are deeply connected because of Jesus. Most of us We'll say we're deeply connected to someone, but that someone is usually our spouse, who we aren't always fully truthful with anyway, to our children, who aren't always very truthful with us anyway, right? To old relationships where we walk through deep trouble together, college, whatever, who we haven't talked to but once or twice on Facebook in the past seven years. That's not deeply connected. Deeply connected exists in a place where I am so known, and I know you so well that our hearts are sewn together. And that doesn't mean that you sit down every week and you go through topical sharing. It just means that we have been connected at a deeper level. And it breaks my heart, as these guys see, to, have never, to think about never seeing you again. I don't know what your relationships look like, but I, I wonder if you could actually describe anybody in your life as being that deeply connected. Like, it would tear me to pieces to know that I'll never see you again, right? The gospel has this uniting factor, this deeply connected factor that connects people that I don't have to do with anything other than this sort of common, compelling love of Christ. We also see this sort of life together in this movement of 
kind of being marked by prayer. Two scenes, right? That scene with the Ephesian elders, they fall on their knees and they pray. But then there's that scene on the beach in Tyree where they spent seven days together. We don't have any belief that outside of that they even knew each other. Paul and his guys get off the boat and they're like, hey, we're going to be here for about a week while they unload and reload cargo. Let's go find the Christians. I mean, that's exactly what they did. And so they went around looking for the disciples. And when they found them, the disciples opened their homes and said, stay with us. And for seven days, they spent life together teaching and talking and doing whatever. And when the end of the seven days came, they pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Please don't go. We know what waits for you there. But Paul says, or you know, Luke says, where time was up, and so we left. And so they get up in the morning, and the husbands and the wives and the kids walk them down to the beach. However far that was, whatever that looked like, they get down to the beach, and it says they knelt there together in the sand, right on the beach. Waves crashing, boats there, ships being filled with cargo, and they just prayed together. You know, deeply connected life together is marked by prayer. Not that sort of token thing that you and I do, right? Not the token thing is like, I am so sorry that you are walking through a difficult time. I will pray for you, right? Not the one response we get when someone decides to post something on social media about a struggle they're going to, where you reply, praying, and then actually never really do it. It's more of, it's become a catchphrase for us to say, hey, I care about you. And I know I should say something somewhat spiritual here. And so I'm just going to tell you that I'm thinking and praying for you. Not what I'm talking about. It's not even close to what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this sort of deeply connected life that says, you are grieving so bad, I will fall to my knees in the sand with you right here in the middle of public whatever, and we'll pray together. They didn't go find the nearest church building and then make sure they reserved a room and then got together and had a little prayer meeting. They just fell on their knees in the sand. Kids also, mom, dad, kids, Paul, just praying together. I mean, we're nervous when we pray before a meal in a restaurant. What are people thinking? Are they looking at us? It's funny. Don't be too loud. Wait till our server leaves. We don't want her to feel weird, right? <laughs> Life together is marked with moments that just say, look, we can't do this without Jesus. So when I say I pray, I'll pray for you, I don't mean later when I go home. I mean right now. Like grab your hands, pray with me standing here because we are petrified of what's about to unfold in life. You know what happens when we begin to pray with each other like that? You know what happens if you begin to pray in your marriage like that? When you grab your wife's hand or your husband's hand or your children's hand, you say right now in this moment, we're just gonna call in the name of the Lord. God restores brokenness. He knits lives together. As husband and wife and families, we have got to be deeply connected to this intentional movement marked by prayer. If your time as a family of prayer consists around mealtime, you're missing it. We are not deeply connected if we're not deeply praying together, not for each other, but with each other. There's a huge difference. There is a huge difference in praying for your wife and praying with your wife. There's a huge difference in praying for someone and grabbing their hands and saying, 30 seconds, just let me pray for us. You look at that person, you're saying, we're marked together. This is what we see. 
We see this life together marked by prayer. We also see it marked by investment, and we see it marked by support. So you get Paul stopping in these places, and every time he stops, somebody says, don't go to Jerusalem. Please don't go. Even Agabus comes along and goes, hey, look, you can go, but you're going to jail, and you're going to get tied up. So that's going to be bad, right? And then Luke and all the guys even as well go, we, they say, we pleaded with Paul, and all, we all pleaded with Paul not to go. Look, they were invested in Paul. They didn't want him to go and face the struggles that were coming his way. It's not that they were trying to talk him out of following the Lord. They weren't trying to go, hey, look, Paul, we know more than Jesus. They weren't doing that. They just purely from a human standpoint were so invested in Paul's successes and failures and hurts and struggles that they didn't want to see their brother walk into a place where he was going to be imprisoned, beaten, and most likely killed. They were just invested in each other. But ultimately what Paul says changes the game, right? Paul says, listen, why are you breaking my heart? Why are you trying to weaken my resolve? Am I not ready to not only go be bound in Jerusalem, but to die for Jesus? Have I not given my life to this? And it says that when they realized he wouldn't be dissuaded, really what that word says, when they realized this, they became silent. In other words, they just didn't have anything to say. And what did they do, right? They supported him. They said, okay, then you know what? God's will be done. Like if that's the call you feel on your life, then God's will be done. Have you ever walked with someone as they contemplated something huge, career change, adoption, going out and being a missionary, whatever that thing is, like listening to their heart as you go, man, I don't, I don't know about that. That's going to be really rough financially. That's a terrible decision or whatever. Like, I don't want you to walk through that struggle, that heartache, that hurt. I don't want you to walk through that fear and have them look at you and say, I believe this is what God is calling you to. Is a response support, right? Okay. If you believe that, then, and we prayed connected together, right? We prayed over it because we're connected. Like, I'm, I'm for you. Even if that means going to Jerusalem, like I'm for you. And so they said, God's will be done. But what's amazing about this, and the last thing I want you to see, what's amazing about this is that fourth piece that says life together is sacrificial. Kind of in a little kind of whispered way, and I love it because it's no fanfare about it. What happens? When they realize, they become silent, and they say, God's will be done, and then what happens? When they heard this, right, after they plead with Paul not to go, they got up and got ready and went to Jerusalem. So the guys that were with Paul said, all right, like, we're not going to stay in Caesarea where it's safe. We're going with you. But what's even cooler is in verse 16. And what happens in verse 16? Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied them. These are not people they knew. They met him at Philip the Evangelist's house. They'd spent a few days with him. They'd heard Paul's cry, and Paul said, God is calling me to this, and not only am I willing to die and be bound for it, but I am compelled to do it. And instead of saying, all right, man, good for you, you're on your own. Several of these disciples said, all right, well, we're from here, 60 miles, we know the trek well, we'll go with you. You know the difference in praying for someone and telling them that you're excited about whatever they're doing and the difference in that and saying, I'm going to go ahead and walk that 60 miles with you? There's a huge difference. We are world-class at this sort of supportive distance. But not many of us know how to go, let me walk it with you. Right? 
You have someone that you know who loved dearly, who's losing their housing or losing work. Most of us are, hey, man, absolutely, we will pray for you. But how many of us say, hey, look, stay at our house, right? I've got a third bedroom or whatever. We'll move somebody out. You just come stay here while you work it out. The sacrifice involved in life together is what most of us have been taught to draw the line at. We will pray, and we will support, and we will do it from a distance. We'll throw those things out on social media all day long. But very seldom does it bridge the gap between, hey, we'll support you. We'll walk with you. We'll financially get in this thing together or stay with us, be with us. Every one of these encounters, they invited these guys into their homes, into our lives, into our children's lives. These kids knelt on the beach with Paul, meaning they had spent time with him. They intertwined and intermingled their lives. There were no boundaries. Why? Because they had spent every year together for four years in a life group? No way. They just met him. But they were sewn together by a common love for Christ. And they just became vulnerable. All right. Be around my kids. Be around my wife. Be around my family. Let's pray together. And you know what? Even more so, I'll walk with you to Jerusalem, not knowing what's there. Let me introduce you to my friend, Nathan, who has a house midway through. We'll stay there. If you feel compelled by the Holy Spirit, then we're in this together. Look, let me tell you something about the church. This is not the church we are. It's not the church that most of us are. We're a church of convenience, right? We're a church of serving and maintenance, a serving of me and the maintenance of me. And we, we judge worship and we judge teaching, teaching based on how entertaining it is. Most of us will leave a church if they don't have donuts. It's just true, right? But what if the church existed to be known? And I'm not saying for you to look at your life right now and ask the question like, who is like this for me? That question is broken and it's the wrong question. The question is, who am I like this for? See, most of it we walk in and we say, I want people to notice me. I want them to see me and notice me and invite me and make me feel welcome. The church existed to say, I want to know people. Like, I want to know you. Even though it's my first, second, third time here, like, I just want to know you. Like, I want you to know me. But we existed in a place of vulnerability. And I know it's petrifying, and I know it probably is somewhat of a, of, of a dream that exists out there. But, man, I long for it. I don't want to sit in a building full of people that just sort of nod along and walk out and see you next Sunday. Like, I'm out if that's what we're doing. I want to be a part of something deeper and bigger and real that we see echoed through the pages of Scripture where our lives are somewhat torn apart by each other and we live in grace and love and vulnerability. Because life together, to know and be known, I mean, it changes everything. The church becomes a launching place to be invited into relationship. Right? And the church isn't a place of safety. You'll go to church all the time. You go, the church should be safe. And the church isn't safe. Living in vulnerability isn't safe. Jesus isn't safe, but he's good, right? Look, I'm not telling you you're not going to get hurt within these walls. I'm not going to tell you you're not going to open up to somebody and they're going to turn their back or hurt you. But I would rather live in the risk of vulnerability and authenticity than I would clothing myself every day in masks, pretending that life is fine, right? It's what scripture calls us to. This is how Jesus lived. This is how he lived with his disciples. They knew each other intimately. And he knew people intimately. He spent time with people that nobody else would spend time with. 
and he knew them. He looked at the deaf guy on the side of the road, and he said, I know why the world has thrown you out. And Jesus takes his fingers and he sticks them in the guy's ears. Right in the source of what the world says was broken about this guy. Jesus is not broken. Like living in that place. This table that we celebrate this morning, communion, is a picture of this sort of life broken open. It's the call to something much bigger and much deeper. It's not a token habit that we celebrate once a month. It is the very expression of a vulnerable life that has been poured out in the cross for you and I. It is the picture of who we're called to be. Each month we celebrate this not out of habit, but out of the reality that this is what we're called to, the bigger picture that we are called to live in this type of openness, of kind of brokenness, of vulnerability that says, God, you did this for me, and you call me to live this way. Like this is the ultimate expression of what it means to do life together. Jesus, in order to keep the church connected, said, I'm going to give you a tool to spend time together. Because the table, everywhere else in the world except for the United States, is a place where we are invited to share life. It's where relationships happen. The United States, food is just a process of eating. It's fast food all the time. But in, in, in other countries, tables are where we invite people to share life. So what did Jesus do? He gave people a tool to spend life together. This communion thing is a tool for us to share life together. It's a common table. It's not a denominational table. It's a table that we have been united to as people that have proclaimed faith in Jesus Christ. It ultimately is a picture of life together, given to us by Christ. On the night that Jesus gathered with his disciples, on the very uh, night that he would be betrayed, that everyone would abandon him and take off, they would run. On that very night, he gave thanks, and he gathered his disciples, and he took bread, and he said, this bread after, is my body broken for you. The same way, after he had taken the bread, he took the cup, he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant poured out for you. That as long as we take of this bread and this cup, we are proclaiming Christ's death until he comes again. And he invited his disciples to take and eat and share in his fellowship together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that this table is that picture. Life together. Deep community. Deep, authentic, real community. A tool that you have given us. God, where we are marked through this sort of deep connection, intentionally prayerful, supportive, invested, and living sacrificially together. This is the picture that was laid out on this table. God, you gave us an instrument to bring us together. We are called to celebrate this table together. It's not something we do in our house by ourselves. It's a movement for the body. So Lord, as we take communion this morning and we celebrate this, God, remind us of your ultimate call in our life that you, through the person of Jesus Christ, through the death and resurrection, have given us life And that life compels us to think and love and live differently. That we are called to live in authenticity and vulnerability the way that you did. So Lord, help us be the church, big C, big C, that lives that way. We ask this in Jesus' name.
This morning we're taking communion by means of intinction. That's a really fancy way of saying as you come down, you'll take a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup and eat it. We have uh, stations down front in the back. We invite you to just come when you're ready. It's chaotic. We don't have ushers. Nobody's got time for that. But we have just inviting you to come be a part of that when the Lord calls you and where you're ready. And then invite you to stand and continue as we close out our time in worship. So I'll invite our servers to come.